you are listening to the Spiritual Warrior Coach with Barbara Sabin, the podcast for discovering how powerful your wisdom, compassion, and courage is. Get ready to join Barbara and her guests as they explore and offer you advice on how to reclaim your power, your energy, and your authentic self. And now, here's the host of the show, Barbara Sabin. Thank you for joining me today, and welcome to the Spiritual Warrior Coach Podcast. I am your host, Barbara Sabin, and I am here to help you reclaim your power, your energy, and your authentic self. You know, I am a certified clinical and medical hypnotherapist, Reiki master and teacher, energy healing specialist, life coach, and best-selling author of Gentle Energy Touch, The Beginner's Guide to Hands-On Healing. You know, I have been helping my clients for over 35 years, and the older I get, hmm, the more wisdom seems to come through. So isn't it time that you believe in yourself? You know, your mind is going to provide you with your greatest challenges in life because it's so very, very powerful. So let's use that mind for positive thinking, creating harmony, balance, peace, love, happiness, and anything else that your heart desires. Because one day, the world will tap you on your shoulder and say, this is your time to shine. And speaking about shining, I'm going to bring on my guest right now. Hi, Sandy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Good. Uh, Let me tell my listeners a little bit about you. Sandy Phillips-Kirvin. She's the author of Let Me uh, Pry Upon You. Pray. Pray, rather, excuse me, pray Mm -hmm. upon you, continues to use her voice to help victims of clerkly abuse. She currently serves on the board of the Council of Child Abuse, and Sandy has spoken before the Ohio State, a Maryland court, and appeared on local television in Boston. And her story, Stolen Innocence, was told in a documentary produced by The Hope of Survivors. And Sandy works with survivors conducting victim support conferences. And she has participated on panels moderated by Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, sharing her perspective from a non-Catholic point of view. And she is a very sought after podcast guest and speaker. And thank you for taking time out of your busy day to uh, be on my podcast today. Well, I'm going here. Wow. So, you know, I, I, I read your story and uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about, about the background of what actually happened to you? Well, um, I think it's important to start with um, my relationship with my church. I um, started attending church. When I was about eight years old. My parents didn't attend. Um, so I went with a neighbor girl up the street and I just fell in love with the church. I loved everything about it. I went to church camp. I would love Sunday school And as I got older, my faith deepened and I became more involved in church. At one point, um, I just started teaching Sunday school. I started singing the choir. I was baptized when I was 13, which really was the the moment of change for me and it deepened my faith. And I I really began to take my role in the church and my relationship with God much more serious after that. Just after I turned 16, um, our church hired a youth pastor and he came from a church where he had just done dynamic things in that church. And so everyone was eager to have this new pastor on board. And he was different than any other minister we'd ever had before. He was 30. He was married with two children, but he really acted more like our age. He knew our music. He drove a convertible. And I think in the 70s vernacular, you'd say he was hip. And even the adults were drawn to him. He was very charismatic. His sermons were dynamic. I mean, just everything about him was just unbelievably unique. And it started very early on that he tapped into me as to be one of the leaders and he took me under his wing. My parents were divorced. Um, I didn't see my father very much. So I saw him as a father figure mm-hmm. and I really became attached to him um, in an emotional way, as well as a spiritual way. And he kind of, and he tapped into that. And so it wasn't, you know, not too long after he had arrived that there was a youth group meeting at my home and he waited for everyone to leave. And then he bent down and he kissed me. 
And I was stunned. I, I thought, I think he just kissed me. I'm 16 at the time. And I, I didn't know how to process it. So I just thought, well, you know, this is his way of showing his appreciation for what I'm doing in the church. And he was always telling me how much he appreciated me and how thankful he was that I was helping him in the church and those kinds of things. So I just rationalized it that way. Then it was about another year where he was, I call the grooming process, where he was always putting me in leadership positions. He was always telling me how wonderful I was. I babysat for the family. So this really gave him uh, a perfect opportunity to be alone with me and to continually groom that process so that I became kind of dependent upon him. I, and, and certainly at the age of 16, I, I liked the attention. And I, and I really felt like I was doing God's work by helping him. I saw this as a good thing. We'd sit and talk about the Bible or, you know, just things about the church. So I didn't really see it as abnormal. But you know, had he been my 30-year-old neighbor down the street who wouldn't take me home right away and want to sit and talk to him all evening, I mean, I know I would have gone home to my mom and said, okay, this is weird, but every time I babysit for this family, he doesn't take me home. He wants to sit and talk to me all evening. So he tapped into that connection of the church, and that went on for about a year. And, and sometimes he would kiss me, sometimes he wouldn't. So I, I never could get a pattern to it. But then there was one night when he finally... Um, took me into the living room and he put me on the floor and began undressing me. And I was frozen. I froze. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't believe that this was happening. Um, he eventually took me to his bedroom where he had sex with me. And from that point on, I felt like I was committed to him because I thought I'd given my way my virginity. The church was very clear that, you know, you don't give away this special gift of your virginity. And so this confusion and, and not knowing what to do, I was traumatized. I was literally traumatized by this act of sex. And as much as I could rationalize the kiss, I knew I couldn't rationalize this. This was wrong and I knew that. Um, it was a very short time after that, he, he became a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He became violent. He became um, just emotionally, just hateful toward me. I, he told me I was never smart. He didn't think I was very pretty. I was always too fat. I mean, it began to be in a very emotional, uh, along with a physical abuse. And then early on, I tried to get out of it. I was, I, I mean, I felt guilty because I knew this was wrong. I mean, he was married with two kids and, I, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to get out of it. And eventually, I mean, I was afraid of him. Um, he always told me that, you know, if I told anyone, he would be in trouble and it would be my fault. And I was smart enough then to know this would be a bombshell in this church if I were to, to reveal that this man that everyone loved and looked up to was having sex with me. So I just accepted the relationship and I just knew that it would not be over until he said it was going to be over. And it went on for five years until his actions were discovered. Um, he was called in by the elders. They didn't talk to me. They asked me no questions. I don't know what narrative he gave them, but he was given a going away party. Uh, he was moved to the next church where he once again committed sexual misconduct within that congregation. A short time after he was moved to that church, I was called in by the elders and told that because of my behavior, I was to leave the church. And um, I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. I loved that church and it was the only church I'd ever known. And now I was being told by two men that I wasn't fit to worship there. And um, so I left, I just left and, and I went on a, the next 27 years, it was a very difficult journey for me because I kept it a secret. I didn't tell anyone, my husband didn't know. And you know, I tell people when you hide a secret, it begins to overwhelm you and it begins to take over your life in ways that you don't even understand or expect. I mean, I, I just thought, well, I'm going to forget it and move on. Well, that doesn't happen. And um, so I'm trying to, <laughs> 27 years go by. And as I describe in the first chapter of my book, I had a trigger that forced me, that just sent me over the edge. It said, I'm going to have to deal with my past. And that was started my journey of healing um, and trying to let go of the guilt and the shame that I had carried for 27 years. So that's the, somewhat of the story in a nutshell. Wow. So he actually like gained your trust. Yes. I mean, and that's true with most abusers, you know, that grooming process, that's exactly what it is. It is a, 
to establish a false trust, mm -hmm. to establish an emotional connection and a dependency. Mm -hmm. You know, I was dependent upon him for the activities that he would allow me to do in the church. And so when he would get angry at me, he would say to me, I don't want you to come to this meeting or I don't want you serving on this committee. And I love that church and that was my identity. So when he would use that as a weapon against me, I certainly then felt like I needed to do whatever I could to please him. Otherwise I was gonna lose that connection to the church. And there's an, a lot of emotional baggage that goes along with that. Um, so that grooming process is very important to gain the trust. And what it does is the victim then starts to, they push the boundaries. And so the victim starts to accept behavior in that individual that they wouldn't normally accept in another person. Right. Um, and that's, that's the grooming process. So did he do this to other women? Well, um, he told me at the time that there were other women and girls that he um, would take into his office and either hug, kiss, touch inappropriately. And he told me about those. And of course he would always say, but you know, I love you the most and you're the only one I really love. And this is just my way. So I was aware um, of that behavior at the church. Now, it's also important to note that before he came to our church, he had an incident in his first church. Um, after he was hired, she came forward to the elders at my church he was confronted, he didn't deny it, said it did happen, but he was sorry that it would never happen again. And so the elders gave no information to the congregation. They allowed him to continue as the youth pastor. And within three to four months, he was kissing me in my hallway. So he had had a definite pattern of this behavior um, and it continued throughout his ministry. Um, as part of the story is I also confronted him 27 years later. Um, Do you think other that, women did also? I do. I do. I don't know for sure. I know um, from his conversation with me, um, there was a couple in the church, one of the churches that he served that sued him. Um, the husband sued him because he was having inappropriate relationships with his wife. So, you know, I did ask him um, how many women there had been over the years. And I would say that most of them were women. They weren't always teenagers. As he got older, I think they became, um, it wasn't just teenage girls anymore. But um, his answer to me was when I asked how many had there been over the years, he just said many, many, many. And so um, I, this was his pattern of behavior and yet churches continued to hire him and he is still a pastor. He's still a pastor? Yes. He, God only I, knows I, what he's doing, what he's been doing to these young women well, he's, that are he, afraid. He, yeah, he's, you know, I, I had confronted him. Um, he had his boss in the room with him, his supervisor, I should say, I guess. And their answer to me was, well, God changes people and I'm a changed person. Um, so they, they see that as that's their out to accepting this person and his behavior. And the problem with that, of course, is first of all, no one really knows how someone has changed or not changed. Mm -hmm. But I also believe that if he were truly a changed man, he would understand that this is not a position that he should be in because of his past behavior. That a truly changed man would say, I've lost that privilege and I understand that. And he clearly does not get that. Um, and when I, when I did have the meeting with him, I, I could see that he really did not understand the damage he had done to me and the results of sexual abuse and what it had done to me over that 27 year period before I was finally able to understand and comprehend that what happened to me just didn't happen. It was done to me by someone I should have been able to trust and in a place that should have been the safest place on earth. So have any women come forth to take him to court? And uh, I, 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 that I don't know. The problem, the problem is the statute of limitations in many states don't allow for victims to come forward, you know, later on. Um, so like in my case, in Ohio, at the time of the abuse, um, age of, age of consent was 16. So I legally, I was consenting. Um, it did change. It's now 18. But you also at one point, I think the statute of limitations you had until you were 21 to file a complaint. After that, you lost any ability. It's now moved to the age of 28. So anyone who's been sexually abused can 
up to the age of 28 file a criminal suit. After that, you, you lose any standing to file any kind of case. Some states, there are no statute of limitations. Other states, it's, it's very, you know, sometimes it's only a year after you've turned 18. Sometimes like as in Ohio, it's 10 years. The problem with that, Barbara, is this. Victims of abuse, even whether it's clergy abuse or otherwise, the average age of coming forward is age 52. I was 49 when I finally came forward. So to expect victims who have been sexually abused to immediately understand what was done to them and be able to have the emotional stability and the financial ability to come forward is really, um, it's inappropriate to expect that. And, and, and one of the things I try to explain to people why, you know, someone said, well, why do victims wait so long? You know, for me, I was so thankful that it was over that I just wanted to forget it. I wanted to move on. I didn't want to have to relive it. I didn't want to have to retell it. I was also embarrassed. I didn't want someone to know this about me. And I was afraid that I would be judged. I was afraid of what my friends would think. I mean, I had been kicked out of a church. I didn't want anyone to know that. I mean, how bad do you have to be to be kicked out of a church? And so there's an embarrassment. There's a fear of being judged. And finally, our abusers are very good at reminding us over and over and over, no one's going to believe you. And if you tell anyone, you're going to be in trouble. And even at the age of 49, those words were like an echo chamber in my mind. I, I, they, all I kept thinking is, I'm going to be in trouble if I tell anyone. When I was first, the first time I decided I would tell anyone about this was my best friend. And I sat and sobbed for 20 minutes. I couldn't get the words out because I could remember thinking I shouldn't be telling her this. I shouldn't be telling her this. And I was a well-educated 49-year-old woman. So it's important to understand the mindset of victims. It's almost like we have been, our brains have been molded to such that we can't think for ourselves and understand, even though we understand the reality and we understand emotionally we're crippled. We're crippled by our past and we're crippled by what these abusers have done to us. So our ability to think clearly is compromised by our, our trauma and our abuse. And that's truly a shame because I, I'm sure he's still doing this. Well, and, and you know, I don't have any doubt that he is. Um, you know, he claims he's been changed and, and the people are, I mean, the scary thing about it also with him is they were, aware of his past, but no one in the congregation is aware of his past. So, you know, this is, this is, an, that is, not should right. not happen. It should not happen. So what I did was I wrote a letter to his 11 elders, um, informing them of his past, informing them of my situation. Not one responded. They Did ignored me. They're also guilty of some of this? Yes. Well, I think they're certainly guilty of enabling him and protecting him. Um, the fact that not one would respond to me, it's almost to say, if we ignore her, she'll go away, mm -hmm. um, which I didn't. I then went to his denominational leaders in Indianapolis, uh, to the president of that denomination. Um, I also had a meeting with um, a group of people there. While they were sympathetic to me, again, the response was, well, we believe that he's a changed person. And this happened so long ago that it has no validity to now. And they haven't questioned any other younger kids. Not, not that I'm aware of. Isn't that, that is truly, of. you know, that's a disgrace. It is, it is. That's um, and as I said, I think, I, I think as he got older, his, his victims were in there, was he was 50, they were 30. I mean, they were always younger, but I, 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 and I know there were girls my age that he did had inappropriate behavior with. So I know there were at the time, um, as he got older, I don't know that, that he, you know, I just don't know. I, I don't know what the situation is. I know that a lot of the women were older women, not older, but they were, you know, 21 or older. Do you think his wife ever found out? Well, his wife is, did find out. Um, she found out um, the elders called her and um, him into the uh, meeting. And so she was very much aware um, and she had suspicious and he was abusive to her as well. I mean, I babysat for the family. So I, I saw him emotionally berate her. I saw him throw a book at her one time. So, you know, she too was um, emotionally and abuse abused by him. Yes. Um, she eventually divorced him. Um, and then he, you know, uh, I think he eventually remarried, I think, um, but she did divorce him. Wow. It's, you know, they're, 
they do it in such a way that puts all the shame and guilt on us. Yes. Yes. And I mean, so, you know, to be told you're going to be responsible for me if you tell anyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a heavy burden to bear. And certainly I and, and, you know, victims also have a connection with their abusers. I mean, so I didn't want to get him in trouble. And I certainly didn't. I mean, if I were going to say anything about him, it was also going to reflect back on me. On so him. I thought, you know, I, I saw this as consensual. Yeah. And then most people would say, well, you still did it. So, you right. know, why didn't you stop? And no, mm-hmm. I was blamed. I mean, he was given a going away party. He was forgiven. And I was kicked out of the church. church. Chances are probably the, I, I mean, I hate to, and I'm, I don't know how widespread it is, but I think there's a lot of abuse in the church. There, there is. And there's more than most people want to admit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just a Catholic issue. I know people tend to focus on the Catholic church. It happens in every denomination. It happens in every faith community. It happens wherever there are vulnerable people. Yes. So, you know, the gymnastics um, with Larry Nasser. it happens where there are people who are vulnerable. And certainly in the church, people come to the church because they are in needs and they have emotional needs that they want met. And when you have a predator in the church who plays upon and preys upon those vulnerabilities, it becomes, you know, he's no longer, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He is no longer a shepherd. He's a wolf. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing, mm-hmm. pretending to be a shepherd to the he's flock of the church. Really? He is. I mean, that's yes. what he is. Yes. And not getting any time in jail for it. Right, right. And it's amazing to me that the laws in only 13 states is a clergy, um, unlike a doctor or a psychiatrist who has any kind of inappropriate sexual relations with their patients, lose their license. There are only 13 states that recognize clergy in the same way. So a clergy who is counseling a woman in his office and has inappropriate behavior with her, there is no uh, consequences legally for that if she's of age. Whereas a doctor or a psychiatrist, there is. And they feel because he he, he preaches God, right? That right. That yes, he can get away with this. Yes, and we do treat our clergy differently. You know, we look up to them. What, their words have more weight, or given more weight than the average person. Mm-hmm. We go to them for counseling. We have a personal relationship with them in the sense that they baptize our children, they marry us, they counsel us. It, you know, so there's an intertwined relationship that makes it even more difficult to see them as someone who would behave like this. Oh, I tell you, it's, um, I don't know what I would have done. Um, you just don't know. No. And again, when you've been, emo- when, you, when you're in an emotional state and this person is pretending as if they're helping you. I mean, I, you know, I miss my dad. He was pretending to be my father figure. He was just so kind to me. And so, you know, for him to pull me in was pretty easy. Was I easy. mean, and and, mm-hmm. and and Susan Forward talks about the acronym FOG, F-O-G, mm-hmm. that victims have. And that is fear, obligation, and guilt. They're fearful of what will happen if they tell. Mm-hmm. They feel somewhat obligated to their abuser. And they have guilt for participating. And they feel guilt if they were to tell anyone. So, you know, there's a lot of emotional baggage that goes with um, abuse victims that is sometimes hard for others who've not been in that situation to understand, you know, why don't you leave? Why don't you say no? Um, I, I really felt like there was no way out. I, I had, I had no idea that I had a way out. I felt trapped. Um, he was controlling, uh, you know, when someone's physically abusive to you, that fear, um, it's mm-hmm. it's there. I mean, I, I just, I was so fearful of him, of what would happen if I didn't do as he said. And as, a, as the relationship went on, like I said, three to four years down the road, I gave up. It was, I'm going to accept this relationship. I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to have children. This is what I need to accept. Right. And my self-esteem was very low. I didn't, I didn't care really what happened to me. I just stayed in that relationship. You gave up. And, and- I gave up. You know, that, that's sad because um, they had, he had full control over you. You gave him your power, your identity, yep. your dignity, your everything of you, you gave to this man who was a rapist. Yeah. I mean, I, ha- I, I, I had nothing left and nothing left. And um, which then spilled over, you know, into my life later on um, because, you know, it took me years to 
believed that I really was a smart person and that I wasn't stupid, like he said, and that I was pretty and I could do things that he said I couldn't do. And, and you know, it, it's, I felt a lot too, and you may know this term, the imposter syndrome, because mm -hmm. I felt like I always had to prove myself mm -hmm. because if anybody ever found out who I really was from my past, they wouldn't like me gotcha. and they wouldn't care for me. Um, and so and I had you lying. Yes, I was, I was, I was pretending to be someone I wasn't, I wasn't this person who was nice and good. I was this person who'd had sex with a married man who was my pastor and was horrible enough that the church threw me out. And so I, I felt I always had to prove myself. I felt like I had to prove myself. And that that's definitely a trap. I mean, and it's, and it's, it's exhausting. It's yeah. exhausting. Yeah. Well, because it stays with you. You, you want to say, but you don't want to say it. And right. it, it's like a, a bad dream that just never ends. Exactly. And, and the funny thing about keeping a secret, you think you're controlling the secret, but in reality, the secret's controlling you. Without a doubt. And, and yeah. I tell that to my clients all the time. You have to allow it to, you have to say the truth. You, you do. have to let it go because it's going to eat you up inside and then they go about their business. They're fine. Right. You are sick and you're insecure. Your confidence right. is down the drain. It, 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 it's a no win for us and a win win for them. Exactly. Unless and, they're caught. And, and you're right. They don't care. His, his no. life went on, you know, um, you know, confronting him. I, I, it, that helped a, a great deal for me to release a lot of the anger. And it was important for me. And I, and I tell victims, not every victim can do that. Um, and I don't say that you need to do that. But for me, it was important. Um, and I didn't know if he was still alive. This was 27 years later. I had lost all contact with him. When I hired a private investigator, he found him. He was in this church in Alabama. So I, I confronted him. And I knew I wanted to say a lot of things to him, but the one thing that I just knew I had to get out was to say to him, I know now what you did to me and you had no right to do it. Mm -hmm. And so being able to verbalize that and finally look him in the eye and say to him, you know, you had no right to do what you did to me. Mm -hmm. And that was powerful. That was very powerful for me. Um, whether it made any, made any difference to him, I don't think so. Probably um, not, but it no. was, you were able to let that go. I was. I had a situation also uh, in my younger years that I finally confronted the person. And um, similar words, you know, uh, mm -hmm. but I also uh, had mentioned that uh, I forgive you mm -hmm. because I needed to forgive me for hating him. Right but he needed to be forgiven too. Um, and I wanted him to understand no matter what you did, uh, I will always remember, but right. I forgive you. And it was a situation where you, you know, prayed on me, um, but I um, allowed, you know, well, I don't know if you say allowed, we somewhat allow it. You right, can, right. Uh, but then we, we get the courage to finally say no. I, I'm not going to do this. Right. No. Well, it's interesting you bring up forgiveness because um, I had intended to say to him that I was going to try and forgive him. Mm -hmm. In fact, he, he brought it up first. He said, uh, not that I deserve it, but for your sake, you need to forgive me. And I said to him, you're right. I do need to find a way to forgive you, but I can't forgive you if you don't understand what you did to me. Mm -hmm. So I had, I had prepared a list of about 20 things that I had him read that basically said, here's what you did. And so it, it started out by saying, um, Sandy, I was wrong when I stopped you in your hallway and kissed you. I was wrong when I hit you. I was wrong. So it was about 20 things that I had him read. Um, because, it, you know, anybody can say they're sorry, oh, but sure. I, I wanted him to understand what it was and how he had changed my spiritual life and how it affected me for the rest of my life. Um, and, and when I talk to victims, you know, forgiveness is tough for victims. I mean, you know, because we want to, we want justice and we want some kind of the anger there to, to, to produce some kind of justice, but it doesn't. And so I tell victims, if you can't use the word forgive, use the word, let go. I'm going to let go of this anger and I'm going to let God take care of it. Or I'm not, uh, it's not my burden to carry that. And so in order to not have that burden, I have to let go of it. And you know what, Barbara, 
it no matter how much anger I had, it wasn't going to change anything. No, nothing was going to change. I, I could I could hate him mm -hmm. every single morning that I got up and think about it. It wouldn't change a thing. And all it was doing was it was preventing me from living the life I should be living. As long as I was hanging on to the anger, he was still in my life. He was still a part of it. It wasn't until I was able to let go and say, I have done all I can do and I'm going to move on with my life. And I don't want him in my life anymore. Oh yeah, it sets us free. From it does. Energetically, it's like severing those cords. You yes. know, the attachment from you to him and then from him back to you, we, we sever them and say, no I'm more, done. No, no more, more. we're done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's not to say that there aren't moments where I have it, but I, I, I let it go. I just, I'm not going there anymore. And it, and I don't want victims to think, oh, well, that's how she do that. It, it wasn't easy. No. It, it took me about two years to get to that point of, and I'm not angry anymore because I don't, I don't have time for that anger. I've got, I don't, I don't want to have that anger, but it took about two years for me to finally get to this point. And what um, did you, did, did you tell your husband, what did your husband? I did. Um, it's, you know, I think most of us as women can relate to this. I told my girlfriends first and um, had many conversations with them. Um, I have a wonderful husband. Um, I devote an entire chapter, chapter to him in the book. And I knew he would accept me. I knew it would make no difference, except um, I had that fear in my mind of telling him. It, it, it was frightening to me. And he couldn't have been more loving. He couldn't have been kinder. He was just... You know, he was concerned that I wanted to confront this man because in his mind, you know, he was afraid of how I would react, how it would affect me. But he was he was on board with that. You know, his his comment to me was always, you need to do what you feel you need to do to heal and move on. And so he was always supportive, you know, and, and he was angry at him. I mean, he was very angry at this man, um, understandably, but it didn't change our relationship. And he couldn't have been kinder and more. I mean, he just did what he needed to do as a husband, and that was support me. Good man. Yeah, he really is. And I know that's a support that helped me move on. Now, what what made you like all of a sudden decide you were going to say? Pardon me. You know what what made you decide that it was time now for you to tell people about this? Well, I was listen. I was going to my grave with this. I had every intentions of keeping this secret till I died, and. I remember when I was, I was married about 10 years and I thought, you know, I don't think Bill's ever going to find out this. I think I'm going to get away with this. No one's going to ever know anything about my past, but I was, um, this is the first chapter of the book. I was driving to my daughter's golf tournament, which was in Tennessee. And I passed the exit sign to where he had moved after leaving our church. And it just set me into a, a, I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't hardly get off the road fast enough. I was so upset it just set something off in me. And I sat by the side of the road, the expressway, the trucks are flying by. I was sitting in the gravel sobbing. I couldn't figure out why I was reacting this way, but I just knew whatever this was, I was going to have to deal with it. And so um, I spent about two weeks just in a total, total disaster of anxiety. And then I thought, I've got to tell somebody, I can't go on like this. And so it was then that I told my best friend. Um, and you know, I remember thinking she's going to think badly of me. And the first thing she said was, I want to shoot this guy. Mm -hmm. And it was such, you know, a, an affirmation for me that I wasn't at fault. And mm -hmm. that yes, this guy deserved to be shot. Um, and so that's what started it. And from there, I did, I read everything I could on clergy abuse. And I began to learn the terms grooming, manipulation, gaslighting, love bombing, all of those terms that once I was understanding and educating myself, I could see what was done to me. And that, yes, that's how he, you know, got me in the position that he did and why I couldn't leave. And um, I began to finally let go of the guilt that I was responsible for this. Yeah, because you, you weren't. He, no. You know, he knew what he was doing and, you know, no. he knew you didn't have a father, you know, your right. dad left and it was time to make a move. And he right. did. Yes. And that's what they do with any, you know, that's they look for um, emotionally compromised people to tap into them and initially pretend to help them initially to understand them, to care about them, only to get to their ultimate goal, which is to 
abuse them and control them. And, um, and that's exactly what he did. Mm -hmm. Typical narcissistic. Uh, yes. Individual. He's very, he's very much a narcissist, very yeah. much. And a lot of women, you know, some that are married to that, you know, find it extremely challenging to walk away from it. And they, they take the abuse from yes. because and they're again, afraid. It, they're afraid. And, you know, once they gaslight you into believing that you're not worthy of anyone, he always told me, you're not worthy of love from anyone else. I'm the only one that knows how to love you. All of these things he keeps repeating. And it's a systematic, methodically doing this over and over. That's what I start to believe. I truly didn't believe that there would be anyone else who would love me and that he was the only one that could love me. And of course, there were times when he would be kind and caring and pretend like he cared about me in order to kind of keep me. Every time I got to the edge where I thought I can't do this anymore, he would wrap his arms around me. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, I love you. You know, I care about you. You know that I need you. And of course, then I start to feel guilty. And what would I do without you? And I'm sorry I'd said that to you. I mean, you know, they, it's almost like they get you just far enough off the edge and then they get that rope and they pull you they right pull back you in. Right back in. They pull you right back in. And because you don't feel like you are a person who could be independent and be by yourself and be alone or, or be with anyone else, you, you say, okay, well, this is, I'm lucky I have this person in my life. Now, did you have boyfriends uh, during the Initially I did. And, and, and he actually set those up for me because, you know, I was in the church and people would be suspicious if I wasn't dating anyone. And so he, he would set these dates up and then he would abruptly say, okay, that's enough. Tell him you're not going to go out with him anymore, which was horrible for me. Wow. Cause here I was going out with these guys and I'm trying to be nice to them. And all of a sudden he'll say to me, you need to tell him you're not going to see him anymore. And which I did. Um, so there was some dating, but then near the end, there wasn't any, it was, it was a very, um, he, he was very jealous and I was not to be with anybody. So one, once you were kicked out of the church because of his behavior, mm -hmm. uh, how did you meet your husband then? Well, I took a job with a law firm. I was the receptionist and he worked there. Oh. And so that's how I met him. Um, and interestingly enough, um, I was still somewhat, even though he had moved, he was still continuing to write and call me. Oh. So there was still a connection with him. And I remember, you know, the first time Bill asked me out, I kept thinking, you know, I'm going to be in trouble for this because if, if he finds out or even though he was miles away, I mean, mm -hmm. that is how controlling they take over our minds. It's just, you know, I, I wasn't, but um, I was able to continue. I thought, well, I'm, this is my chance of happiness. I'm going to try and take it. And I did. Yeah, it, it is mind control without a doubt. Yeah, it's a cult. It's like a cult. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So now, all right, then you, you dated, you got married. And, mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, now you finally came out and said what happened. Right. What was, how, how did you help yourself heal? Right. What did you do for yourself to finally clear all this, this heavy energy? Well, the, you know, the one thing that, that, that freed me most was to understand what was done to me. As I said earlier, that <laughs> understanding what was done to me and, and the fact that he had this power over me as my pastor, you know, I didn't understand that power imbalance. And I didn't understand that, you know, I really was powerless under his control. And so I had... I literally, Barbara, this is the truth. I literally every day would say to myself, he had no right to do what he did and it was not your fault. You should have been able to trust him. And I had to do that almost every day because I would flip back to, well, maybe I should have said this or done this, or maybe I did encourage him and I didn't mean to. No, none of that was true. Mm -hmm. I, and you know what? It doesn't matter what I did anyway. He was in a position of authority and he, it was always his responsibility to maintain those boundaries. I don't care if I flirted with him. I don't care whatever I did with him. He was the one who was in the responsible position. He was my pastor and he had every expectation to keep those boundaries where they belonged, not me. Not you. And, 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 and I did nothing to encourage him. I, I mean, I was absolutely stunned when he kissed me. I was absolutely floored. And of course, the night that he had sex with me, I, you know, they talk about flight and fight. I had a frozen reaction. I mean, I absolutely froze. I, I was so traumatized by what he was doing to me. And I, the chapter in, in that, in my book, I talk about, I, I titled it AD 973. And the reason I do that is because as he, 
started to have sex with me. He was pushing me under the stereo. It was an old stereo on four legs. And underneath, I could read the serial number. And that's what I did. Oh, my God. I was reading the serial number to keep from thinking about what was happening to me. And, and then the next time, you know, I, I babysat. I mean, that's how it happened. And so the next night I was babysitting and I knew what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I, I just knew that that's what was going to happen. And I, then that started the, the five-year abuse. Where was his wife? she worked evenings oh she oh so there was a perfect uh, it was it was the perfect setup it was storm Mm -hmm. it really it really was and and Mm -hmm. of course no one's going to suspect anything because he's the pastor of the church yeah I mean there was no one now I think near the end I think people thought he was spending too much time with me or he was you know he would be mad at me people would say me I remember he was mad at you about something well that's a little odd for a pastor to be mad at someone in their church Mm -hmm. um so I think there were red flags that people saw but they ignored him because of who he was. Who he was. So while mm-hmm. he got away with everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, because he was manipulative and very charismatic, he also manipulated the congregation and fooled them as well. Um, so, you know, they, they, they not only manipulate and fool the victim, but those around them as well, because they need that security that if I get caught, they're going to support me. And that's exactly what happened. And they do support them, unfortunately. Yes, they do. And, and then no they one do. believes you. They believe him that yeah. it was you that did it to him. Yes. And yeah. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what was. Now, having said all that, I also went back to the church where this occurred and requested a meeting of the current elders. Now, none of them were elders at the time. Some of them were at the church at the time. I wanted a meeting with that with that church because as much as what he did to me was wrong what they did was as equally as wrong if not worse mm-hmm. and i've often said you know his abuse was horrific but what the church did and the response of that church really had more of an effect on me because what would a difference it would have made in my life had they come to me and said look what he did was wrong and we're going to help you we're going to support you how different my life would have been yes. those following tour, but that's not what they did. No. So they were very gracious in allowing me to have the meeting. Um, and the other thing is I wanted the truth to be told because I don't know what he told them. Yeah. And I, I wanted them to understand I was 16 years old mm-hmm. and this was the pastor of the church who was 30 years old and married with two children. And this wasn't the first time it happened. And this church knew about the first time and still allowed him to be our pastor. And even after the second time, they did nothing about it and just moved him to the next church. So they were very much responsible. Um, they enabled him. And, you know, I became the next victim because they overlooked what the first victim told them. And, you know, I think they, they were very understanding and I think they got it. And I think my testimony to them, I think allowed them to understand that, you know, we got to be on top of this now from now on, we are not going to let this ever happen in our church again. Um, and so, you know, that was healing as well to be able to go back to that church. Right. And I wanted them to say to me, you are welcome back in this church. And did they say that? that yes, you they, did. Oh, they did. They did. Mm-hmm. They did. Now, I've been back a couple times. It's not a place I'm comfortable being. Yeah. It has a lot of bad memories. I don't, you know, I and I still have a lot of friends there. I have relatives that are still in that church. So there's a lot of connections still to that church. But as far as being comfortable you know it's not it's not really a comfortable place for me so now when when you came out and said this is what happened how did your family and friends and other people react to to you everyone was supportive i didn't have anyone question me i didn't have anyone so i tell victims you know as afraid as you might be to tell someone you will be surprised at the support you can get. I mean, people get it now. They understand it. It's the people in the church that don't get it. Yeah. I mean, those are the ones that are more judgmental and more critical most of the time. Um, and I'm not sure why. I mean, I think they want to protect the institution. That's one thing. I think it's an embarrassment for the church. So they don't want that to be out there. Um but, you know, when I try to, I've spoken to church leaders and church councils, and I try to explain to them, you know, the outside world gets that, you know, you may hire someone that you don't know about his past and something happens. It's the cover up. 
It's the cover-up that causes the issues. And it's the failure to recognize that you have got someone that does not belong in, in the ministry. Um, and you need, they need to be removed. They don't get second chances. They don't get to go to counseling and come back a year later. They've lost that privilege of ministry. Now, that's not to say that they can't be forgiven. That's not to, not to say that they can't be entered into the kingdom of God. But they no longer have the right and the privilege to be in the pulpit. They need to be sitting in the pews of the church. And if, it, and if they are child molesters and they're minors that they have abused, they don't belong in the church at all. They, you, cannot, you cannot let pedophiles among your church and among your children. It, it just, it's still you, happening. You just can't, it does. It does. It's still happening, which it, it, it's unbelievable because it leads me to believe that they're doing it also. <laughs> well, and, and no, not just to girls, I mean, to, to boys. I mean, oh, uh, yes, it, yes, it, absolutely. Um, you know, I said to people, you know, if you had a church treasurer who was stealing money from the church, would you allow him to continue to be the treasurer? No. And you certainly would expect him to pay back that money. These men have no consequences a lot of times. Um, and they're, 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 the, the church says we're to forgive and that we've all sinned. Well, that's true. But there are consequences. In a way, though. Yeah, and there are consequences. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, I am a nurse. If I'm caught stealing narcotics, I lose my license. A stockbroker with inside training, he loses his license. Every profession has an ethical, professional boundary that they're not allowed to cross. And when they do, they lose that privilege of their profession. And and clergy should be the same. But it's not, though. No. And what? So are there new laws that are hopefully coming out that, or something has to be done? I'm sure this has been going on for like- Centuries. Yes, yeah. Centuries. I, I mean, I, obviously there's a, there's a greater awareness about this. I think there is, um, churches are becoming more, uh, I think, concerned about it, but they're still responding inappropriately many times. Many times, again, they're still passing these men along without telling anyone. Mm -hmm. and. Certainly, like in my church that I grew up in, it's an independent church. So they have no hierarchy to report to. So they don't have an established um, but governing body that they have to report to. It's just whoever's in that church makes that decision. And so that's another problem as to why these men can continue on in different areas, in and different churches. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Because it stays right. within that, that area. Now, every, every state, every state, you are required by law to report any child abuse and child sexual abuse. It's required by law. So churches don't have the right legally to hide these men in spite of the fact that they will. They aren't every law, every state requires that you report child abuse. And, and they're not. And they're and, not. They're not. Know, I sometimes I do a lot of research and, and look and I say to myself, wow, there's a lot of this going around and not just in churches or in the synagogue or, or, or wherever, you know, I also corporate America. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. it's rampant. And, and these, these men, you know, uh, get away with uh, the suffering of either women or children or, you know, um, boys. It, it doesn't yeah. matter. Right. I mean, again, wherever there's an, a power structure that allows for someone to be under the influence of another person, mm -hmm. then that is a, a, it's ripe for abuse. It could be, you know, abuse, an abusive relationship. And some, and sometimes they're not sexual. Sometimes it's just an emotional abuse, emotional. which can be, mm -hmm. you know, just as damaging in many ways um, to be emotionally abused over time. Um, it, it plays with that person's psychic as well. Oh, it does because yeah. Uh, sometimes emotional abuse is worse than physical abuse. Oh yeah. And to unravel those lies that you've been told over and over again, mm -hmm. takes years and it takes, you know, therapy. It takes a lot to, to finally believe in yourself and to say to yourself, I am worthy and I am not what my abuser said I was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, for, for the average, well, I'm sure there's still a lot of women and children suffering from all this. What, what would you tell them? The first thing is what is happening to you is not your fault. Right. There is nothing you could have done, said, or changed that would have stopped this person from doing this. You mm -hmm. were in a vulnerable position or a place that you were unable to stop this person. So it's not your fault. So, you know, guilt and shame keeps us quiet and it keeps us, prevents us from speaking out. Yeah. 
Then I would say, which is what helped me, is educate yourself. You know, start learning the terms grooming, manipulation, gaslighting. You need to understand that you are being physically and emotionally abused. This isn't a person who cares about you. And then you need to tell someone. And I say that having kept a secret for 27 years. So I know how hard it is to tell, but you're not gonna be able to free yourself from this person and live the life that you were meant to live until you're able to tell someone. And if it's clergy abuse, I would recommend probably telling someone outside of the church because yeah. you, you know to tell someone in the church, the response may not be as helpful as it needs to be because there's going to be, again, they've got a connection to this person that you're accusing of abusing you. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be a tendency to want to protect the church. And so I think it's important if you're going to tell someone, make sure you tell them um, someone you can trust outside of the church and you will be believed, you know, you will be. And if you're not, you go to, you tell, you talk and tell yeah. someone till you are. Mm -hmm. Now I know you're on a lot of boards of, you know, of child abuse and um, um, the hope of survivors. And mm -hmm. so has this, everything that you've been doing now besides your book is it finally getting out to the average person that they understand that this is really going on i think so um I, I think there are still people who will say to me does this really happen that much or is this really a, a need it is and, and and so i see myself as saying look if i can keep you know reaching people one by one and if i can enlighten just a few people at a time that's great. That's, you know, that's my mission. I mean, when I confronted him, I thought, okay, I've told him this is going to be all it's over. I can go on and live my life the way I was before. Mm -hmm. And I realized that my story had a purpose yes. and I needed to, to make sure that that purpose was fulfilled. And it's been cathartic for me as well to be able to do this, to help other victims. Um, because I'll tell you, I really thought I was the only one when this was happening to me. I never believed that this could be happening to anyone else. Yes. And I've often wondered, what if I'd heard someone's story when this was happening to me? Mm -hmm. It may have given me the courage to come forward. It may have given me the courage to say, I'm not going to do this anymore and I need to stop this. So I tell my story so that other victims, maybe it'll give them hope for healing, but also the courage to say, I need to talk. I need to tell someone. Yes. And that's, uh, I would assume why you wrote the book, you know, let us I did. Yeah. I was frustrated by, I was frustrated by the lack of understanding of abuse. I was so frustrated by people who would say, well, I don't believe them. If they didn't come forward right away, then I don't believe them if they came forward 10 years later, mm -hmm. you know, um, or I don't get why they just don't say no, or why don't they just slap the guy? You know, those are, Not that's easy. Yeah. It's a clear lack of understanding of a victim's mind where they are emotionally and the power that men mostly men have over women under their care yeah yeah i know you know um for myself i actually uh told my father and uh he confronted this person and just i thought he was going to kill him he yeah beat him up so severely it was yeah i felt i actually felt bad sure you did right yeah, he beat him up so badly, but in a way, at least he, under, my father understood. Yes. And, and, and took it upon himself to correct. Make it. sure there was consequences yeah. to this. Yes. That, that, yeah. That there was a consequence and yeah, um, yeah it, it's a, it's amazing, you know, when like a family member, like, you know, say, right. if you did tell your mom, you know, what she would have done. Right. You know, right. Yeah. And, you, you know, again, as victims, when you, you have your abuser saying, don't tell, don't tell, don't mm -hmm. tell, don't tell. And as I said, at age 49, when I started to say those words, I was sexually abused by my youth pastor. I kept thinking, I, I can't tell her. I just, I can't do it. I was paralyzed with fear from 27 years ago. So now do you counsel? Uh, um... I don't do a lot of counseling per se. I do talk with victims because I'm not a professional counselor. So I do talk with victims and share my story and share my experience and what I've done to heal. And hopefully that's helpful to them. And I think it is. I mean, I'm sure it is in many ways. And, mm -hmm. and the book has been very um, helpful to a lot of victims who've told me, you know, I read your story and I could identify in so many ways because while our stories can be different and I'm sure you and I would share this, mm -hmm. there are a lot of similarities too. Yes. Um, I mean, there are more, there are more similarities and differences with abuse victim stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I'm, 
so happy that you finally did this. I am too. I, I, I think, and I think churches need to be aware too that victims are no longer remaining silent. You know, years ago, they kept us silent and more victims are speaking out um, and they need to step up their game because um, what is happening in our churches shouldn't be happening and they're responsible for allowing it to happen. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a known fact now that it's, it is happening. Yes. Yes, it and is. No one does, nothing is really being done to stop it. No. Truly a shame because you, well, look at all the lives that instead of them truly helping these people, they're right. destroying them. And yet we talk about judging and, you know, and, and God, you know, doesn't judge you and all this, but, but they're allowing this. Yeah. And, and when I, when people say to me, well, we shouldn't judge. I, I, what I say to that is I'm not judging their salvation. I'm not judging their character. I'm judging whether they're fit for the job. Yes. That's what I'm judging. And what I'm, and my judgment says they're not because of their, of their own behavior. You know, these men lose that privilege of ministry by their own actions. No one else. It's because of their own actions. So I'm not judging whether they're a changed person. I'm not judging whether they're spiritually right with God or whether I'm judging the fact that by their behavior, they've demonstrated they cannot be in the position to ever hurt someone else again. Right. And hopefully one day we'll see that this finally, that they're, they're all, they all suffer the consequences. Yes. Yes, exactly. Because they've made yeah. you suffer. You know, and and so many other women and boys and girls and and everything else that one day um, this will come. And it's a lifelong effect. It will. I will mm -hmm. live with this. Like you said, you don't forget it. No. You can forgive, but you don't forget. And it 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 um it will stay with me the rest of my life. Oh, it does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's for the but, rest of my life. But you know, we know how worthy we are, and that yes, uh, we have the the we can do anything that we want to do for ourselves. And we we've have got our voice back, our, right. voice, we've back. Got our voice back, our power, yes. our, you know, authentic self, our energy. Yes. And, and that's really all that matters. Right. I'm on the other side. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Ah, <laughs> oh, wow. This was interesting. So Sandy, well, where can people buy your book and. Um, okay. Um, well, this is the book. Um, I love my title, I have to say. Yes, that is, you know, uh, the, let me pray upon you. Yeah. Ooh, that's powerful. Uh, the book is available on Amazon. It's on a Kindle version and paperback as hard as hardback. And it's also on my website. Um, my website is just my name, which is Sandy Phillips, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, Kirkham, K-I-R-K-H-A-M.com. And I would encourage victims or anyone who's interested in learning more about clergy abuse to go to the website. I've got a lot of information on there. I talk about grooming and um, there's a chapter in my book is on there as well, a free download of that. So, um, and then I have a Facebook page as well, but the book is available on my website or at Amazon. And and with your Facebook, are you getting a lot of hits? Like people- I do, I do. Yeah, I do. And that's been the most rewarding for me. I, I, um, when someone says to me, hearing your story really changed my life or hearing your story helped me heal, helped me start to talk about my abuse. I mean, that was really, you know, I, I just, I guess, because I wish I'd heard someone's story. I just is. wish I'd heard someone's story. And they, it's important for them to know that they're not alone. They're not alone. You're not alone. And you can have the power to take your voice back. Mm -hmm. Wow. Good for you. And hopefully one day he'll be behind bars or something. You know? Yeah. I, you, know, calm, I, you know, yeah, it's, calm. it's, yeah. And it's, it's, it's out of my hands, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm at peace with where yeah. I am and, and I don't think he is. Well, that's it. And that's all that matters because yeah. he's, holding, he's holding a really heavy, heavy burden. Yes. <clears throat> and I think when, uh, when it's time for him to leave, that burden is going to really be told. So, yep, yeah. But again, where can uh, the the name of the book again and your website? It's Let Me Pray Upon You, and the website is simply my name, which is sandyphillipskirkham.com. Okay, thank you so much for taking well, the thank time. Thank you. This. Uh, it, it's a, a subject that really needs to be it does told. Yeah. So, and I appreciate the opportunity. It's been a delight talking with you. Oh, thank you. Same here. Believe me, and. Um, I want to thank uh, 
everyone for listening today. And uh, again, a big thank you to Sandy uh, and for her courageous uh, uh, getting out and writing this book and, and having knowing, you know, having people know that they have hope because that's so important. Um, again, thank you for listening and uh, maybe visit me at motivateyourlife.net and please subscribe to this YouTube channel, The Spiritual Warrior Coach. We're on Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, YouTube, um, and we're actually now international, uh, yeah. United Kingdom, Spain, uh, Canada, everywhere. Uh, and it's nice to know that people are listening throughout the whole world to this. Um, and um, for those of you maybe interested in learning uh, energy healing, uh, check out my book on Amazon, Gentle Energy Touch, The Beginner's Guide to Hands-On Healing. And um, just wishing everybody a beautiful week, week filled with love and with light. Love, Barbara. Yeah.